Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crew. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we're back with another episode of our Movie Gifts Podcast. It's like Secret Santa, but for movies. Each participant picks a title for another that the recipient hasn't seen. It's a fun way for us to share our enthusiasms and gain new insights on old favorites. For this round, we invited Film Comment contributor Nathan Lee and former Film Comment editor Gavin Smith two longtime friends who were eager to assign each other movies. For Gavin, Nathan selected Paul W.S. Anderson's action-packed 2008 remake, Death Race. And for Nathan, Gavin chose Larry Cohen's 1976 apocalyptic sci-fi stunner, God Told Me To. Devika and I were a little less considerate to each other. I gifted her the toxic 1979 football drama North Dallas 40, and for me she chose as revenge, her childhood favorite, Baby's Day Out, a madcap live-action cartoon about a sadistic baby running wild in the streets. Movie gifts or movie torture? You'll have to listen to find out. Welcome to another episode of Film Comments Movie Gifts Podcast, one of our favorite podcast traditions because often the gifts are more like torments. Yeah, I think I'm going to jump in here and say that I really (laughs) considered this one to be more of a movie torture episode, at least. Although, you know... That being said, you know, you learn something about yourself when you experience things that you don't want Precisely. to. Precisely. Yeah. And we had, we managed to net two perfect victims for uh, this movie torture episode to, should I say ghosts of film comments past, film comment legends? Still haunting the hallways. <laughs> yeah, still haunting uh, our our collective conscious with their great, great criticism. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Nathan, you want to go first? Uh, thank you, Devika. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Nathan Lee. Uh, I'm very excited to be joining this particular movie gift slash movie torture podcast. Um, I am currently a film professor. I teach at Emory, um, and in the fall, I'll be starting a job at Holland University. Um, but I'm also was for many years a film critic, um, including for many years a regular contributor to Film Comment when Gavin was the editor there. Um, so Gavin and I have a long history of working together. So it's a it's a joy to be able to gift him a uh, a film for this podcast. And the film I chose, um, I wanted to fuck with Gavin, um, was my agenda for this that's, podcast. That's sort of, I have to say, your choice sort of set the tone for uh, Devika and my gift to gifts. Yeah, too, so we were like, okay, this is a trash episode. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I was thinking like, <laughs> but I'm you are a some... connoisseur of movie trash. I know this. Yeah, I was like, okay, what do I make him watch? Do I make him watch Moonfall, the Roland Emmerich film? Do I make him watch? My first choice was Blade Two, actually, which I still think is Guillermo del Toro's best film, but Gavin had seen it. So I pivoted and, and came up with two choices, and the one we'll be talking about today is um, Death Race, the Paul W.S. Anderson uh, quasi-remake of the Roger Corman classic Death Race 2000. Um, and I picked this film because I have an immense fondness for it. I haven't seen it since 2008. I reviewed it actually for the New York Times and they gave it a critic's pick um, for my review. And what I remember loving so much about this film was it felt like an authentically sort of nasty and greasy and unpretentious B-movie in, a, in an 
in a high CGI era in a very analog way. Um, like it was really just about cars exploding um, really, really well, um, in a really sort of well-executed way. Um, and yeah, a simple, modest, punchy kind of B-movie with just uh, an unapologetic um, kind of greasiness about it, but also a real verb, a real kind of rare B-movie verb that didn't count on special effects. So I remember this movie with great fondness. Um, I'd be very curious what Gavin made of it. I rewatched it the other night and it actually made me think quite a bit about Mad Max Fury Road um, and, and that the kind of vehicular sort of analog practical effects in the film um, felt like a kind of low rent Fury Road. Um, also, uh, it features one of my favorite Joan Allen performances as a uh, mendacious prison overlord. Um, so this was the film I chose for Gavin, Exploding Cars, prison drama. So Gavin, do you maybe tell us who you are <laughs> and, then, and then launch into your retorts? Uh, I'm Gavin Smith. I teach film at um, the School of Visual Arts and freelance film critic, former editor of Film Club. And uh, Nathan was definitely one of my uh, favorite contributors. And it was a great loss to the magazine when he had to step back from writing to focus on his important academic career. So, yeah, I, um, where to begin with Death Race? Apart from the fact that it got 42% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm just going to keep banging away at that. I mean, I don't get what Nathan's saying about it being a kind of an analog film. I didn't really get and didn't see much. I didn't see really see any sign of digital effects in it, although I suspect there are probably a few. Um, but it's not, it's not dependent on, on digital effects. And I, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, uh, that's something that I appreciate in any film that involves um, elaborate stunts or, or um, action set pieces. Um, I, uh, I think I, I, I saw the original Death Race 2000 many years ago, and they're pretty different. Um, Death Race 2000 was a satire, uh, and the race is not a kind of gladiatorial thing between the drivers. It's a race in which, along the course of the, uh, the race, it's, it's a cross-country race, I guess, the, the points are scored by the number of pedestrians they can run over. Um, and, yeah, the original. And uh, David Carradine plays the character Frankenstein, and he's, he wears a leather mask, just like Jason Statham does in this one. Um, there's no prison setting. It's more of a sort of social satire about, um, I guess, the sort of uh, a decadent society looking for its kicks through real-life automotive murder. And it's set decisively in the future, whereas this is set in a kind of, dystopian near future. Um, and so the satire in the original wasn't particularly biting. I mean, it's not a great movie, but it was a great concept. Um, and, and I it's think- it's kind of he, stuck as a, as a cult film over the years. I suppose so, yeah. Uh, I mean, Roger Corman um, did want to remake it. He was originally approached by Tom Cruise 
um, uh, to, who wanted to produce it. And Tom Cruise was never happy with the scripts that came up. So um, it went into turnaround and, and landed in the capable hands of Paul W. Paul w. Anderson. I've only seen one other Paul Anderson film, and that's um, the first of the franchise of Resident Evil. Uh, and I thought that was okay. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't watch the other Resident Evil movies. Um, you, you're, you're missing out. Yeah. Are they good? They're good. Yeah, they're good. Um, has anyone seen any of the sequels to This Death Race? I mean, there have been like four, three or four other sequels. Are they um, all Paul W.S. Anderson? No, I don't think so. I think he had. He had. Uh, and this, this was a passion project for Paul Anderson. He tried to make it for 13 years. Um, uh, and it was only when Jason Statham signed on um, that um, this became a go project. I'm interested in this film as yet another installment in the sort of Jason Statham career. And it's fascinating to me that this is one of the few Jason Statham films in which the title has more than two words. Uh, uh, and it's possibly one of the films in which he's worked with a, with a director who has it. A real track record. Wow. I'm looking at his Wikipedia and there are lots of... One word titles. One word title. Lots. I mean, Spy, uh, the recent ones like Spy and then Homefront, Hummingbird, Parker, Safe, Blitz. The Meg. Quen That's two words. Yeah, but I mean, come one on. Noun. One, one noun. One two words. Yeah. 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 You know, initially, the, the film kind of reminded me of, uh, of The Purge in the franchise. It's got this similar kind of dystopic idea of sort of uh, um, licensed violence. Um, obviously, here it's confined to the, the, the prison, which seems to also be a, uh, uh, any number of disused factories connected to it, which I don't really understand. I think Jason Statham always tends to play these kind of troll every man who are also killing machines uh, when they're pushed to, to the edge. Um, and P.S. he turns out to also be an amazing driver. Um, I, I'm not sure if that came up. He's often a driver. I mean, the transporter movies, he's like a driver killing machine. Oh, he? Too, right? yeah, he just, he's, he's like a, he does these things that are like, and he's probably a good mechanic. Well, I'm looking at his Wikipedia and there is like this mechanophilia sort of yeah. thing. Like all the movies, almost all of these movies that he's known for have something to do with cars or machines or, you know, just some kind of techno spectacle that has to do with machines. I mean, I thought that one of the things Nathan would be really engaging with in this film is the hyper-masculinity that's kind of like, you know, that oozes from the movie, you know, uh, right from the get-go, you know, with these, these steel, uh, um, uh, steel mill workers. And uh, I mean, it's just one long, sweaty kind of guy movie. It's, it's a lot of man-on-man -man action. Yeah, film. a lot of man-on-man -man yeah. action. A lot of testosterone. I, I mean, I thought the film was fine. I really didn't. I didn't. I didn't find it to be hard to watch. I, I, I like action movies, uh, and this was, you know, made at a reasonable budget that the seams didn't show. I think the problem for me is that Paul W. S. Anderson, in lieu of knowing where to put the camera, he puts the camera everywhere, and the cutting and the and the uh, and and the framing is just. Yeah, willy-nilly. It's just, it's, it, he's really not a guy who knows how to kind of shape a film 
He just gets a lot of footage. It's kind of like the Tony Scott approach. But even Tony Scott, I think, was a bit more disciplined. Resident Evil seemed like it was maybe. A- yeah, Gavin, it's a good point. I think you're you're right to notice the movie is is it's more edited really than sort of shots. Um, it's sort of a lot of coverage. It's and it's it's interesting because his Resident Evil films in, in the franchise he made I think about three of them. The camera work is very elegant in those films. They're very sort of it's very sort of geometric. It's very kind of clean lines. It's very smooth cinematography. Um, and around the time of this film, when it opened in 2008, some of you may remember, there was this kind of emergent idea of um, vulgar auteurism, right? At Michael Bay and Paul W.S. Anderson was another one of the filmmakers who were kind of lauded as a kind of, yeah, as a kind of vulgar auteur. Um, this was really, I think, based more on the kind of Resident Evil films and the, and the earlier films. But um, yeah, I think, Evan, you're right. There is a, there's a, ch- there's a more choppy style to this than... Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it has to be said that this film probably belongs as much to the second unit director as I'm sure a great deal of what we see in the film is second unit. And, and there's probably a third unit as well. I mean, there's a lot of coverage. I mean, I think the best thing about the film in that sense is that they really, they really do it. You know, the, you know, those cars are for real and they, they, you know, they function the way they function visually i mean machine guns and everything are, are, are practical they're not like not fake so i mean that comes back to nathan's original point yeah i mean it has a real physicality to it it really you feel you feel metal you smell oil you know you feel impact um in a way that increasingly feels rare um that's part that was always part of the appeal for me and there are some good kills as well yeah right? there have to be some good kills and uh, there were a few. I'm not sure I really kind of uh, love the ending where they come out of it. You know, two two people with a big grudge end up teaming up and, and escaping to Mexico. Um, uh, even in the where even in the near dystopian future, criminals can escape you know, to Mexico. Escape to Mexico. I love it. I was just going to backtrack a minute, um, Gavin, when you were saying the you know, the first film had a, was a kind of satire. And um, just for those who haven't seen this film, it has a sort of premise that is ostensibly could be a sort of critique, but of course there's no politics in the film at all, which is that it takes place in this near dystopian future. Um, All prisons have been privatized and this death race is undertaken in the prison and broadcast to subscribers like a reality show. So so the reason why they're racing is to um, to make money because they they are sort of selling this to the masses, like and so you it's know, like, like a, a snuff a, snuff reality show or something. Like people tune in to watch people get killed. Yeah, well, is that isn't that also the uh, kind of a, th- a callback to the Running Man, that Schwarzenegger movie? That they sure, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, this is two thousand and eight. So you know, reality TV is you know, it's a moment. Reality TV is really sort of taking off. So I just think it's. First of all, to give some context about the plot of the film for those who haven't seen it, and to Gavin's point, there's there is no satire really in the film. It has a sense of humor, but it's not a satire. It's framed by what could be a kind of critique, right, of capitalism or you know the sort of alignment of the prison prison industrial complex with the military entertainment complex. But the film has no politics. I mean, it's. You, the, the political dimension is just a screen title that just said what I just said, basically. 
Um, but what do you mean when you say the film has no politics in the sense that it has no stance and it's just using these ideas for a spectacle? Well, I mean, Gavin, I mean, I mean, I think you, you sort of would see my point where it's, it's not a satire, but there is, it's framed as a kind of a, a potential critique. I don't think the film really has a stance, but that doesn't mean to say you can't read it politically. But I think the, the politic, reading it politically would be not a very long exercise. <laughs> it would involve deep thought. Um, I think the Purge franchise, which is similar but nationwide, is a much more interesting collection of films. And they are actually pretty well directed. I feel like we should do a um, thing where after the after the at the end you should be like, "Was this movie torture?" And if you, it sounds like you kind of enjoyed yeah. it, so it's, we're going to do like one of those X's in there. This movie was definitely not torture. Gift right. or torture? No. Well, uh, it, <laughs> it wasn't on my list of films I want to see, but you know what? If it came out next week, I would have been happy to have gone see gone to see. It. Um, I did see the last Jason Statham film, Wrath of Man, which was a, actually a bank heist movie um, and a revenge movie as well. I think it, there's sort of a few different things going on in that film. And this is a guy who has, I mean, he's probably one of the most bankable big stars in the movies. His movies are always successful. And this is a guy who is uniquely incapable of giving a performance that's anything but one-dimensional he could do he's got basically one setting i mean he's in so many movies and so many successful movies but i like never think of him you know he never he doesn't sort of persist in the hollywood firmament as a star to me no he Uh, he, he seems as though he's somebody kind of who's sort of in the uh sort of um what would you call it sort of um lower depths of hollywood but actually he's a huge star and he has a huge following He's like a huge star in the of B of B movies. Although I mean, I'm not sure if you can even like that's even a category that we could like. I don't know if you can really call any of these films B movies because ultimately, um, uh, you know, it's a forty six million dollar budget, and I don't think many of his movies are much cheaper than that. And he probably gets a big salary, and they get released widely and they get seen widely. Mm -hmm. Me and widely globally, I think is probably where he's yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sad to me that he he was one of those people that came out of the Guy Ritchie um, era. Um, he was in a couple of Guy Ritchie films, and I think they are the most abysmal films. I think he's one of the most abysmal filmmakers to have ever had a successful career. But he somehow has broken away from that and kind of created a whole kind of... I mean, in a way, you could say that Jason Statham is the, the auteur behind all of these films. I don't. I don't think he's too good at like uh, pulling off the kind of comic, you know, sides or, or witty put downs. No, it's not in his vocabulary. Okay, so um, not torture. Enjoyed it. Um, not dying to see the other three films. Um, and uh, I, there was, I think, one great line from um, Joan Allen: "Release the dreadnought." <laughs> the dreadnought yes well which which they do to great effect yeah i think the dread, that was where it started to lose me a little bit the dreadnought was just kind of they kept the rules of the game keep being changed by the people behind the scenes um but dreadnoughts um, are being released and 
Yeah, there was a great note in this movie. Well, Tim, when, as you're describing the the cutting and the editing, I'm thinking of um, this is my transition, but I, it, it's reminding me of like you're, as if the, you're watching sports, you know, like it's a race and you're watching. So like it's cut as, and shot as if sports are better shot and edited than this film. <laughs> All right. There was a strained transition, but go well, the for transition it, goes into the sports yeah. movie that I have uh, selected for Devika to watch, um, North Dallas Forty, which is uh, directed by Todd. Uh, Ted Kocheff, who's probably most well-known as the director of Wake and Fright, the Australian horror movie. North Dallas 40 is a, stars Nick Nolte as a kind of maverick rebel football player who's always kind of smoking a cigarette, cigarette dangling it out of his mouth um, for, a, for a, a, the North Dallas Bulls a professional football team. And basically the, the film is like, he's sort of he's kind of cynical and becomes increasingly cynical over the course of the movie about the nature of the game that he's involved in and the business that he is involved in why i assigned it to devika was because it's just uh quite i think kind of disgusting in like a very like 70s american like football culture way like there are these party scenes where these giant men are just sort of like sexually assaulting anything around them for fun and like drinking giant cauldrons of beer and smashing each other and like fighting uh, cauldrons like... of a uh, pink poontang oh pink poontang is yes. the mixed drink yeah is the name of the drink yeah i thought of it as more of a torture film for her in that regard <laughs> and i and i also in full dis- yeah i i hadn't seen it in a while and uh it was quite a bit more intense than i remember in that regard so i just want to apologize up front but I will also say, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think Nick Nolte's compelling. You know, he's always kind of fun to watch. It doesn't make sense that he would ever be a professional athlete, especially in, in this context. Like, he looks like he's about 45 years old and he hasn't ever done a push-up or anything. He's constantly drinking Budweiser and smoking cigarettes. Just like, it looks like a truck hit him, basically, the whole movie. So, but then goes out on the field and does like, you know, makes an amazing football catch. But um, yeah, Devika, what do you think? Well, I have to say it was a bit torturous to watch, but not necessarily because, you know, of the more off-putting bits. It's just sort of unlike any movie I've seen in the way that it's cut you know, it it has like a really strange rhythm to it. I couldn't even like really grasp a kind of narrative structure when the ending came, where basically Nick Nolte's character is, I guess, kicked out and then he quits because of some kind of investigation where he's found to have... What did he do exactly? Smoke pot and... But maybe he, it seems like maybe he had an affair with somebody's yeah. girlfriend, one of the executives' like One of the owners, yeah, one of the executives' girlfriends or fiancés. Um, but it just, the movie doesn't have a recognizable dramatic structure, which really took me aback. Like, I, it just felt like it was at, a, at an even pace all the way through, and it just kind of dwells in these moments, these scenes that are very brief, that often feel not very well contextualized. And, I mean, it really seemed dated in so many ways that I found it interesting as, like, some kind of, you know, object, you know, like a a historical movie, 70s movie object. 
And I also, it took me a while to even understand what sport it was. I do not know sports at all. And I was like, oh, this is American football, which I think is completely not cinematic. Like, it's, it, it, I don't know, they just blow a whistle and then these guys who are standing just like three feet apart from each other ram into each other and that's it, right? Like, what else happens? I'm so confused. It's so uncinematic to watch. There are no. I mean, it's definitely uncinematic in this movie. <laughs> That is what happens. Yeah, then people just like fall down and are and grab their knees. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's how the sport is, but you know, and I think Clint, I think the reason you assigned this to me is we wa- talked about hustle recently, yes, which yes. you you wrote about hustle for film co- the film comment letter, and then I watched it on your recommendation, <laughs> and I thought I I had issues with that movie, but that movie is actually really fun. Right. And has a very traditional structure, like very traditional underdog structure. And the sports scenes are thrilling to watch. I mean, even though I don't watch basketball either, I don't really know how basketball works either. They're very like, they're shot in a fun way. And they're just, um, you know, the players are all handsome and fit. And there's this sense of, I, I at least have a sense of what the NBA means you know, and that all the money and all the like uh, emotion invested in it here. Like, I don't know. Is this how sports players were in the seventies? Because they all have dad bods. They all just like are short and stout and just look so beat up and, you know, not the slightest bit glamorous. There is actually a long history of uh, football players, uh, American football players becoming movie stars with Jim Brown or Jay Simpson. There are probably a few others um, that I'm missing out, but those would be the, the two most prominent ones. Why they needed to be movie stars, I don't know. I mean, O.J. Simpson has some kind of charisma. Jim Brown was kind of a, I guess, a powerful masculine presence. Uh, I think Mac Davis maybe um, came from that background. I only I saw the movie a long time ago, and I, I started watching it today and watched the first uh, 15, 20 minutes. And the first scene, I think, is a really remarkable scene. I mean, the scene where Nolte wakes up and he's, and he's physically really, you know, beat up and he, he you know, uh, he takes a bath, he's smoking a cigarette. Like, really established how punishing the game is to these bodies, even strong, even sort of strong, powerfully built men. It's an incredibly punishing game. And I, I don't remember that scene from when I, saw the film originally but I thought that was a remarkable scene that is like the theme of the movie and I mean that's what I was surprised by the movie's really melancholy and it just is scene after scene of them suffering bruises and you know just their bodies suffering all sorts of different ailments and then getting you know shot up with drugs that numb them and but it kind of oscillates between this this kind of somber vibe and just kind of and this like party and just kind of like wild boys being boys scenes yeah but the party scenes are also sort of like very much you know almost they seem like they're posturing right because they're just in a lot of pain and their bodies are giving away and i i mean there's a whole scene where they work out at a gym i was really kind of surprised by the scene it's just like close-ups of all of them doing various workouts on gym machines and again i'm just struck by just how completely unglamorous and disgusting they all look like yeah. they're working out they just look 
unhappy. They look, they're like, they're in pain. They're not like, you know, they're, they're not dressed in any kind of, kind of like uh, macho and sort of attractive way. And it's just, you just can feel the crunching of their bodies. Yeah. And that opening scene that Gavin's describing, you, the sound is just like crunches and back, his back popping and his jaw like being slid back into place, you know, just. I mean, I think it's safe to say that whatever the film is, it's not glorifying these characters or that world. Uh, those parties are not supposed to be parties that we as an audience feel are glamorous or a lifestyle that we wish we you know, could partake of. I just remember generally the feeling that it wasn't a, it wasn't a film that glorified that world. And I think that's a virtue. Yeah, but it, what it does glorify in, instead is this is uh, Nolte's rebel attitude or his the his declaration that it's the purity of the game when he's out there playing and he makes a beautiful catch and everything's flowing that that's why he does it and that's all that really matters to him in the end and i think that's like what's offered as as recompense for this total destruction of their bodies no i'm saying like that was puzzling to me because the movie doesn't actually make any effort to showcase the art of the sport you right. know and so when when they talk about the sport the feeling but what you see of the game i don't know you know maybe someone who's familiar with and has an attachment to the game already would bring a different kind of emotion to it but you see of the game in the movie doesn't give any sense of why the game is so important to them like what is the craft what is the sense of you know spiritual attachment they have to again what simply seems like men ramming into each other that's it, you know. I, I mean, mean, that's all the movie shows of of the game. It's a bad game. Like maybe this, is, you know, like I think it's a, it's like that is that is an accurate representation of the American football. And uh, there's also a moment though where where Nolte says something like, "It's the only thing I know how to do well." Like I can't. Somebody's like, "Why don't you quit?" And he's like, "Well, this is the only thing I can do good. Like I can catch things. I got the best hands in the league." Even though he looks like he's got like you know, the worst body in the, like, he looks like, <laughs> and he like, looks like he's about 15 years older than every other player on the field. But Mac, the Mac Davis character do, does say to him at one point, like, you're the only person I know who has an uglier body than me. And there is the self-awareness about the strange, right? Like the expectations that they place on their bodies seem so different from what we see and what they seem capable of. But really, can someone answer this question for me? Is this how football players looked back then? I don't know. <laughs> well, probably. Probably. I will say that I appreciated that uh, very soon into this movie. I was surprised by it because I was expecting something, frankly, dumber because of how Clint had like, pitched it. And there's a joke about, if, like, there's a Freud reference, you know, which actually isn't, it makes sense. It makes sense that these people throw out. Like, there's a joke where he's like, where's your gun? And he says something like, Freud said, the gun is an extension of your dingle or some word for, you know, dick. And that took me aback and, like, made me think that this movie, even in its crossness, is sort of thinking a lot about masculinity and and the specific kind of masculinity of sports culture mm -hmm. in, you know, the self-aware way. So I think it, I think it also establishes that the Nolte character is much more intelligent yeah. than his teammates. Right. Uh, and that's part of what sets him apart. Yeah. And I will say neither torture nor gift again. I'm a, 
it was tortuous to watch, but not that tortuous to think about. So, This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Iconic directors, emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. Plus, get a free movie ticket every week to see a hand-selected film in theaters with Movie Go. Previous picks include award-winning films like Drive My Car, The Lost Daughter, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, and The Power of the Dog. This week's movie is the deadpan debut of former Yorgos Lanthimos collaborator Christos Niku, entitled Apples. Movie Go is now available in New York and Los Angeles, and will soon expand nationwide. And for a limited time, MubiGo is included with your movie streaming subscription at no extra cost. Discover great cinema on the big screen and at home. Sign up now at Mubi.com slash go. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash go. Let's move on to the gift from uh, Gavin to Nathan. Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Yeah, God Told Me To. Um, It's a film I've seen a bunch of times, but I rewatched it today and and it, it surprised me again. A lot of the uh, ingredients in this film surprised me. But I think what really made me want Nathan to watch this film was the whole kind of uh, outrageous kind of conceit of this kind of transgender extraterrestrial messiah. Uh, and the imagery, the, 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 the kind of orifice in, his, in, 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 in the side of his chest where I believe Christ was pierced by a spear. It's, I think it's a fascinating film to look at in terms of gender. And it's, a, it's an unusual film of, for the genre to be so um, focused on Catholic guilt. And it, re- it doesn't beat you over the head with it, but it's, there's a real character, you know, Tony Lopianco didn't have much of a career. Um, is get, gets a chance to play a real character with a lot of dimension. And, and I've, there were lots of things I'd forgotten about the film that were very surprising about his connection to this uh, <clears throat> messiah figure, if that's what he is. Uh, I, I thought Nathan would find it funny, and I thought Nathan would be really interested in it. So. Well... Uh, Mr. Smith, you were right on all counts. Um, I think if today is gift or torture, I really won the lotto and got the best film of the bunch. Um, I had seen a few Larry Cohen films, Cue the Winged Serpents, uh, The Stuff. Um, is there one called It's Alive? Yeah. Did he make It's Alive? Yeah. yeah. So I had seen a few, but he was never a filmmaker I had really sort of run into, but I had never seen this film. I think I maybe had started it once because of the opening scene I remember, but I certainly never got through the whole film as I, as I quickly realized. And Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about the plot just for, you know, people sure. who haven't seen it? Um, as much as it's possible to describe what the hell goes on, is going on in this totally berserk movie because as much as as Gavin is right that the the kind of gendered aspect of the movie is fascinating I also love a a completely gobsmacking hot mess of a like (laughs) of a of a cinematic conundrum which this film is it's it's completely wacky probably the inspiration for the film was that at that point in New York and, and and cities in America there were a number of incidents where snipers were like shooting people in the streets and I think that from a kind of a tabloid incident like that, Larry Cohen was able to kind of then draw in all these other elements. So the idea of these kind of random killings 
Uh, I mean, it's a great time capsule of New York City in 1975. The timeliness, the, it's, it's both, I think, I, didn't, I did appreciate it as a kind of time capsule of New York in the 70s, um, but the timeliness of it struck me right away because the movie opens with a mass shooting. It opens with a sniper on a, a water tower in New York City just randomly shooting people. Um, and the cop, um, the character's name is Peter, he's the Catholic kind of protagonist, police officer, you know, ascends the to the water tower and says, you know, why do you, why are you doing this? And, you know, he says, God told me to, and he sort of, and he jumps to his death. And so this is the opening scene and we have just gone through yet another mass shooting in America. And I watched this film either the day or before the day of or after the Supreme Court had um, neutered New York's gun control laws. So I began watching this film and went, oh, this is very, this is very timely. There's like, maybe this is gonna be a, you know, like a timely movie to return to. And then it ended up, in fact, just being timelessly and eternally crazy. Um, and had very little resonance with gun violence. This is not what this, this sort of movie is about, but, I, but it was actually quite startling to watch a movie that opens very, abruptly and explicitly with a mass shooting. I mean, it's just this guy gunning people down in New York City. Um, so the premise of the film in a, in a nutshell is this cop, Peter uh, Nichols, Catholic, is investigating these mass murders that start happening around the city. Um, and every time he meets the sort of perpetrator, usually before they die, they, they say, God told me to. And as he investigates, he finds out that these people have kept coming into contact with some sort of mysterious, androgynous, long-haired hippie, um, which is sort of, it sort of doesn't, you're not sure, sure what's going on, but, but then he goes to sort of investigate this hippie, which leads to him also investigating um, like the genealogy of this person whose name is Bernard. So he, he goes to meet this character's, this person's mysterious figures, God figures, mother, who um, I believe the, the whole scene, she just screams and tries to stab him and then just dies. Um, it's very, it's a movie full of very abrupt sequences um, and a kind of spasmodic, illogical narrative development. In any event, as it ends up, Bernard is a kind of radioactive, non-binary, transgender, intergalactic messiah who is some kind of Jesus avatar from outer space who... Who seems to spend like most pretty awesome? <laughs> yeah, who seems to spend most of their they them's time in a basement full of fire, um, which is where Peter ultimately encounters Bernard, who has this kind of um, it's not the stigmata, but as Gavin was saying, that kind of Christ's wound where he's stabbed by the spear. I, I'm not religious; I don't know what it's, but it's famous icon iconography. Um, but it's kind of vaginal. And Bernard proposes um, to Peter, who it ends up, they've both been alien abduction um, and that Bernard and, and Peter are sort of kin. And Bernard proposes like, let's start a new race, having some kind of weird intergalactic non-binary Jesus like sex. And anyway, the movie is totally nuts. And there's a whole conspiracy of cultists who are like part of the Bernard cult. Anyway, the movie is totally bonkers. It's 90 minutes long. And what I really loved about it, I mean, this is movie's a gift because, you know, Gavin mentioned he's watching it many times. This is a movie I could see returning to again and again and again and finding it more and more interesting. Um, it's, it's so kicky. It has such a punch. And it has also something that I think is... Um, 
really unique and actually quite rare for a kind of B movie. It reminded me, the movie has a really authentic and genuine sense of chaos. It feels legitimately chaotic when you're watching it. Um, and this has something to do with the filmmaking, which is not very suave. It's full of kind of really elliptical editing, scenes that seem to kind of come out of nowhere, you know, plot elements that are introduced really briefly and then sort of abandoned. Um, it's not a kind of seamless film, but it's so clearly propelled by this filmmaker's vision, as bonkers as it is for the story that they're telling. It reminded me actually quite a bit of the energy, like the kind of vibe of um, David Cronenberg's Shivers, which was made around the same time. This kind of frantic, you know, a filmmaker who, you know, at that time was a little clumsy, you know, didn't exactly know how to, you know, wasn't making the most sort of suave visual films, but the frenzy of that film reminded me kind of of the, the chaos of this film and that both of them, although they kind of have B-movie aesthetics, um, you know, the acting is not all great. The narrative, the narrative progression is um, really kind of syncopated and, and sort of almost rushed. The movie seems to be rushing headlong into ideas before you can even absorb the scene you just saw. Um, so it has a kind of manic consistency, a kind of like irrational consistency where I was watching it and I was increasingly had no idea what was going on, why I was watching it, where it was going, but it has a real authenticity of vision to it um, that I think is very rare. Um, and it is a movie that is full of really interesting ideas, but there, but it doesn't take any time to develop any of them, any of them. You know, they just kind of sit there sort of germinating. You definitely don't see where it's going though. You definitely don't yeah. see what's no. going. And I mean, the whole film was, it's an independent film shot entirely on location in New York at a time when New York was kind of a disintegrating chaotic place. So I think chaos that you're, that you're kind of alluding to, I think something that's captured from the environment that the film is set in and, and the kind of incidents that would happen in New York City in the 70s. Fun fact, the, uh, the policeman who um, pulls a gun during a police parade and starts shooting other cops, played by Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Um, and, oh, and I also think this is the first movie to depict alien abduction. I don't think that was a, I mean, you know, UFOs were a thing, but not the idea that the the people were abducted by UFOs and had you know stuff done to them. But what year was this movie? Seventy five. I also read that the there's two very brief, very hallucinatory, sort of surreal alien abduction flashback sequences, and I read that Larry Cohen um, used these got these scenes from a television show. He didn't film them. He like, he did writing. Wow. He put yeah, them in his film from a, from a TV Space, show. And then, yeah. They're from Space 1999. Yeah. Which was- actually, I don't know what that is, but yeah. It was a, you know, it was a science fiction show um, that was actually showing on television about the same time the movie came out, which mystified. As you both are describing it, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, Nathan, you're saying this movie is just like this B movie penchant for chaos, right? Like just like pushing pushing the envelope in some way, like getting those thrills and shocks. 
and just seeking chaos in a way that somehow ends up blurring the binary, right? Like the, just random things get amalgamated and then it seems like this kind of radical vision, which I'm just feeling almost nostalgic as you're describing this because I feel like this kind of movie today would be so calculated. Like it wouldn't have that sense of just landing upon something strange, you know, or something new. It would be, yeah, it would have this commentary. It would get totally immediately absorbed by like the think piece industrial complex. And um, I'm just feeling nostalgic about it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. This, This film could never could never be made today in the same way that something like shivers was a you know had to do with the you know the 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 systems of production in canadian filmmaking at the time when cronenberg made it um it's also a film that hit me in a in an almost an unexpected way because again it, it opens with a mass shooting um today we're having we're recording our podcast we won't be broadcasting it on the day when the supreme court overturned roe v wade and this is a movie that is is partly about kind of Catholic sort of guilt and, 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 and intensity, which I can't relate to as, as a non-Christian, non-Catholic person, but it, it's a movie that really encapsulates that famous William, Carlos Williams line, the pure products of America go crazy. I mean, it's a movie about really America gone crazy um, in a particular sort of way. I think we should switch over. So we have a little bit of time for Baby's Day Out. I cannot for the life of me, think of any transition, okay? I I cannot think <laughs> well, of any... Well, had this way. urban a portrait of New York in the urban 70s. Urban crime? <laughs> I don't and know. now we have a portrait of New York, maybe Chicago, I couldn't really tell. I Generic American urban landscape in 1994. Is that yeah. right? When Baby's Day Out. So yeah. why don't you introduce it and tell me, tell yeah, us why, uh, why you chose it. So I have to say, this was such a random choice. I just reached very far into my subconscious. Um, this, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in India. And this was the only movie that my parents, American movie that my parents owned on VHS when I was a kid. And we watched it like every weekend for like a couple years. This movie is truly imprinted in my brain. I vividly remember every scene, even though I haven't seen it in like, you know, two decades, more than two decades. And we watched it again and again. And it was my favorite movie as a child. And then when I actually came to America, I realized that no one had ever heard of it. These were my first images of America, you know, like this is, I knew every line and no one had heard of it. And then it turned out that it was this huge flop, critical and commercial flop in the US, but a huge success in Brazil, China, and India. Apparently it ran for like years in India. It was just like a mega hit. Yeah. And... And, you know, I mean, clearly it was, like, popular enough that my parents watched this with me every weekend. There I were don't know spin-offs. There were Indian, like, several different Indian versions with very And with Chinese. Other, yeah. Yeah, tell us, tell us what happens in Baby's Day Out. So it's directed by Patrick Reed Johnson, but it's um, actually, you know, written by John Hughes and... Much like the Statham movies, it's the babies. <laughs> the baby is the auteur here. Let's be honest. <laughs> it is. And Cynthia Nixon is in it, you know, uh, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle is in it. Like, it's it's very, it's a random cast. But the movie is, 
the simple log line is there's a rich family in what seems like I don't know suburban some the suburb of some city they're very wealthy they schedule this uh, photographer to come in and take pictures of their baby for the paper or something and these three crooks uh, basically pretend to be the photographers and kidnap the baby for ransom and the baby just turns out to be too smart for them so the baby like keeps escaping and just randomly like boards a bus you know well not randomly it, it's all according to this story that the this the storybook that the baby loves yeah. and so anytime the baby a bus pulls up and then the and you see the baby's point of view here and then and it transitions to this page from the storybook of a bus and yeah. then the baby goes boo boo and then crawls onto the bus because the character <laughs> the in the book is moral of this boo-boo. film is read books to like babies should be read too because then they will figure out the world. But it's also, it's not just that the baby's smarter. It's as the Joe Matenya character says, it's baby luck. The baby <laughs> just sort of like wanders out onto like the rooftops. And then like, uh, as it's just cartoon, cartoon yeah. logic as like a crane swings by and the baby walks onto the crane and just keeps going. And yeah, yeah. that happens over and over. It's like this, the city is this perfectly oiled machine and the baby somehow is always at the right place at the right time and gets the better of the crooks. And um, yeah, I mean, Clint has a baby <laughs> and I just thought it would be funny for him to watch this and also maybe to... I don't know, demystify for me in some way. Like, why? Why this movie? What about this movie? I thought you were going to say demystify parenthood. And I think this no. movie really gets that. No, this movie does not. But you know, what about this movie just didn't work in America in the 90s and worked so amazingly well in these other countries? I just, it's so fascinating to me. Well, I mean, the main the main draw of this movie is the sl- is the slapstick violence and it gets extremely like for a movie about a baby torturing uh, three adult men it is like extremely violent like they fall and it's also extremely looney tunes their their gags drawn straight from looney tunes like joe uh joe pantoliano is another one of the other uh is, is another of, of the um goons and at one point he falls off of a building that's under construction into a giant vat of concrete and then he gets out and he's covered in concrete and he yells up and says like we better get out of here before before i dry and then he pulls his little hat off and his head is done his dome is completely uncovered the best gag you know the one i'm talking about there's a lot of oh the best gag is you mean the the fight the lighter there's another scene where they finally capture the baby and Joe Pantaleon or Joe Matenya is holding the baby over uh, on his lap and has a has a jacket over him to hide him from cops who are asking them questions. And the baby just repeatedly punches and kicks him in the nuts, and then pulls out a lighter from his pocket and lights his nuts on fire. And and so he's talking to the cops and and like trying to maintain a straight face as he's undergoing this torture, m- movie torture, <laughs> and the baby ultimately escapes and. I mean, it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's real uh, Three Stooges stuff. But somehow, like, I feel like, again, this is a movie that if it were made today, it would be a lot worse. Just like the, the production value is quite high. The, it, it, the filmmaking makes sense. There's the, the sequences spatially you understand where everybody is you understand like why things would happen you understand how the gags happen 
they you so you feel like when they when they get hit in the crotch which happens over and over and over and over and over again you understand why like what's hitting him in the crotch and what's on the other side of the board that's whapping them i mean there is a practical effects element to it too right like it's all objects like I mean, listen, real yeah we're, we're really uh there's there's not much so to say so about like, Baby's Day Out, but I'm trying. So it's like baby. Trying. It's like baby death. It's like baby death rays is what you're trying to say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The baby is the baby is also extremely just cute. You know, it's a cute baby. So you, it's you know, you're rooting for the baby. It probably had triplets to to probably. actually. Oh, and at one point the baby does get adopted by a gorilla at the zoo. I just want to say a couple of things. Um, I've seen this movie. I think it probably would be torture for me to watch. Uh, it sounds like a kind of uh, another kind of version of Home Alone, which yeah, was yeah. also written by John Hughes. And this was, oh, yes, of course. This was written by John Hughes and produced by John Hughes as well. Yeah, I mean, he's just going back to the same idea, but like making it even more regressive. Like it's the uh, he, this Did is more of this is more really more of just like an extended Looney Tunes, though. Like it really is m- more cartoonish than Home Alone. Home Alone was pretty cartoonish. Uh, imagine um, a more cartoonish version. This that, is more cartoonish. That's uh, hard to imagine. <laughs> but there is a purity to it. I mean, that's what I'm struck by. Like, th- there's a kind of purity that just isn't part of the movies, even kids' movies now. You know, there's just like a. Okay, I'm gonna sound very pretentious, but it's like a cinema of attractions kind of thing going on here. You know, it's just so pure, and you're just. Really, I was still laughing at these gags that I was laughing at when I was, you know, three years old. There is something just about objects just colliding and things happening to bodies that feel that, like Clint was saying, makes sense. You know, it's not... Well, the one thing that it doesn't make sense that at no point do do any adults look down and notice that there's just a baby like scuttling along the sidewalk, getting onto a bus. None of the adults on the bus notice the baby walking down that, like because adults are always looking upward apparently. But that part, whatever. Other than that, it sounds like I should have assigned Nathan "It's Alive," which the Larry Cohen film about a killer baby. And these mutant <laughs> babies are born, right. and, and, and it, even in, the, in even in the operating room where it's being born, it kills a nurse. It's right. got re- really sharp teeth, and it goes on a rampage in the city, and the parents are trying to find it. Same idea, mm. more or less. Yes. Yeah. Well, we could do a we could do a follow up with killer baby movies. Oh yeah, what are other killer baby movies? Um, I guess Alien. Does that Alien. count? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very good. The, the Brood. The Brood. It's live Brood. It's live Brood. I mean, I remember the VHS cover of It's Alive very vividly. Looked at it a lot when yeah. I was a kid. A, bit, a stroller with like a creepy, yeah, monster claw mm-hmm. coming out of it. Um. Yeah. Uh, is eraser head count? I guess there's no killer. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe eraser head. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's plenty. I'm sure we can. That's a real yeah. uh, rich genre. Rosemary's baby. Rosemary's baby. Yeah, there you go. Oh God, now I'm thinking about current events again. Well, I think maybe yeah, that's that's the place to wrap up wrap up the gift giving. Uh, thank you, Gavin and Nathan, so much for doing this with us. I guess it ended up being not all that torturous, eh? I liked baby. I'm gonna give Baby's Day a uh, gift. Wow! Wow! Uh, edging into gift. Good. I mean, I don't. It wasn't torture. It was kind of fun. Cool. 
And yeah, thank you both for joining us. It was really nice to have you have you both on and to facilitate your long overdue reunion, it seems. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Yes. 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 Real pleasure. And I got a great movie out of it. Good 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 choice. Good choice, Gavin. You you know me. You know me. I think you did you get won. the you definitely won this round, I think. And hopefully we'll have you back both back on to like talk about, you know, better movies <laughs> even though it sounds like Nathan got a good one but you know have some um, meatier conversations so looking forward okay. to the next time okay thanks everyone bye. thanks everybody All right, bye the film comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge film comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center since 1962 Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.